But those of you that are here, man, what a blessing it is to be here this morning. And uh, what do you think about the new paint job? Man, I'll tell you what, it turned out so good. And I'm just so thankful that the Lord's allowed some of these things to happen over the last uh, few, few months, really. And it's been great to see. And uh, thank you to everyone who came out for the men's breakfast yesterday and all of the guys that were out helping as we uh, got rid of, moved some pews. And uh, now the chairs are still coming this week, so be ready for that. Next week you should be sitting in something differently, all right, which would be good. And, uh, but uh, things are just happening, and it's exciting to see. It's nice to see this, uh, our sanctuary where we meet getting ready uh, for us to uh, welcome our neighborhood as we uh, begin to really focus on outreach as we move forward. We've really focused a lot on the building, getting it ready, and now we can focus on outreach and reaching people with the gospel, and we have a place that we're proud to have them come and, and be a part of, of our services together. All right, well, we're in First Peter chapter 3 this morning, and we're going to continue our study together as Peter is right in the middle. Now, I want you to remember back with me uh, to last week, Peter is right in the middle of speaking to scattered and... Uh, uh, persecuted believers throughout the Roman Empire. He was trying to remind them, and honestly, he's trying to warn them of the fact that there is persecution that is coming to them, to anyone who would profess Christ. And speaking from experience, Peter is able to give to them some uh, practical thoughts on how a person can remain courageous, uh, how a Christian can remain strong, even when there are people intent on silencing and diminishing their faith. Now, for the believers in that day, of course, we know what that persecution would look like. It meant public attacks might be coming. It meant that there might be a loss of uh, income. It might mean that there would be a loss or they would lose uh, family connections, people that they were close to. We know that it could mean public, I mean, persecution in the sense that, I mean, actually getting beaten for their faith and, and being put in a position that uh, really no one would ever want to be in where you're faced with deciding between your faith and, uh, and maybe your health or your life even. And so there were many challenges that were coming to them, of course. We understand that. But at the same time, uh, they were still willing to go and serve. And as Peter's encouraging them, they listen, stand up for your faith, stand up for who you are. Now, that was what they were dealing with. For us today, persecution, of course, looks a lot differently. For us, we live, of course, in a day where Christian beliefs are being silenced. Uh, we don't have to look very far to see that many corporations around our world today, uh, in the name of acceptance and diversity, silence the voices of Christians, which is so ironic to me, right? In a day of acceptance, how we are not accepted as individuals. We, uh, maybe for some of you, of course, uh, if you share your Christian opinion, you uh, suffer maybe the loss of friendships and challenges like that. We understand all of these different aspects to what persecution looks like for us today. It looks a little bit different, certainly. But regardless, and this is what we need to understand, Regardless of the attacks that may come, regardless of persecution that may come the way of the believer, Peter's challenge last week specifically was that we still need to sanctify our hearts. Do you remember that? We need to set our hearts towards the Lord. We need to understand that it's always better to suffer for doing right than it is to suffer for doing the wrong thing. And the reason for that is because if you suffer for righteousness sake, you have a secret strength. If you suffer for doing the right thing, if there's suffering and challenges that come into your life because you are following after the Lord and you are living a life of righteousness in the pursuit of holiness, the secret weapon that you have is that you have a God who's with you there in those challenges. You know, God doesn't come alongside you when you break the law. Did you know that? <laughs> He's not out there, hey, I got you, you know. <laughs> God's like, okay, you got yourself into this, now you have to suffer the consequences of it. But if you suffer the loss of a, a job or you suffer the loss of a friend or a family member because of righteousness' sake, 
God is there with you. He's walking beside you. He is there to strengthen you and to encourage you. He's kind of like that secret weapon that we have where he's walking with us in the fire. He's beside us in the struggle. He is holding our hand, giving us guidance. And it's a blessing, church, to even suffer a small portion of what Jesus suffered for us on the cross. See, when Jesus suffered on the cross, he did it to give us life eternal. And yet, even though his flesh was put to death, he was not defeated because three days later, he rose from the dead, proving his power over our inevitable ending and proving to us that he is indeed worthy of our faith. He is worthy of our devotion. To put it very simply, church, through the resurrection, we have hope. We can be courageous in trials because our God is victorious. That is why we love Hebrews chapter 13, verse 6, that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. Do you remember that verse? The Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do unto me because we, and we can say it boldly, because of Christ's resurrection. Now, this is a victorious message that we see here in our passage, but it's within the context of suffering. So we're seeing victory even through suffering, and it is the central theme of the verses that we're going to cover today. So I want you to understand that the overriding theme of the passage that we're in right now is the idea of Christ's victory, a victorious Christ, even though there is suffering. That means he, of course, was victorious on the cross and in the resurrection, but also we can be victorious in suffering as well. And so what we're going to do as we continue in our passage is that we're going to sees an interesting passage. I just want to put it out there today. Today's passage is interesting. You know, there's some passages in Scripture where you're just like, okay. And you guys would maybe not, uh, maybe not understand, but on a Tuesday morning as I get in and I look at the passage for Sunday and I begin to prepare as I work ahead, uh, this is one of those passages where I was like, hmm, okay, we're going to have to dig into this. It's an interesting one. So I hope that you'll pay attention and focus, and, and I'm going to do my best to uh, do a good job of, of t- teaching you what the Word of God says. But what we're going to see is that we're going to learn about the victorious Christ, as I mentioned. We're also going to see the crucifixion, but we're also going to see something interesting. We're going to see what Jesus did during those three days that he was in the tomb. We're also going to see how then the resurrection vindicates all of the false attacks on our Savior, and now we'll learn that he is at the right hand of the Father, victorious over all things. So Peter is focusing our attention in suffering here to victory in Christ. And he does it. He gives us a four-step explanation of the events that led to Christ's victory. And he does it around the events surrounding his death and burial and resurrection on the cross. And what I want us to get today out of anything else is that you can be confident as a Christian that our God is greater than anything that we may face. Our God is greater than any evil that this world has, any spirit that is out there. He is greater. He is victorious. So as we move into the passage together, let's look first of all this morning at Christ's crucifixion. Christ's crucifixion. If you're taking notes, go ahead and write that down. Christ's crucifixion today. Let's look at verse number 18. He says, For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened, that means made alive, by the Spirit. Now, when I read this verse here, I think, honestly, I I believe that this is probably one of the clearest verses in all of Scripture on giving us the reason behind Christ's death on the cross and what his death on the cross means for mankind. 
In fact, I think that this explains it so clearly that the person who hears this verse being read aloud, the person that hears this verse or reads this verse or, or, or just comes across this verse in any way, I believe that it is so clear uh, as to what Christ was doing that it leaves the hearer without excuse. And really, there's no reason that we would not understand why it was that Jesus Christ died. And because of its clarity, I think it's really important that we understand it and we know it very, very well. That every Christian study it in depth and even commit it to memory. I think it's that powerful of a verse. You might be saying, Pastor, why do you feel that this verse is so powerful? Well, here's why. Because it tells us that Christ died once for sins. Notice there it says, Christ also hath once suffered, of course we know that suffering led to his death, we understand that, later on in the verse it says dead, uh, the word dead there, dead in the flesh, but Christ died one time for our sins, and he died for the sins of humanity. Now it's important for us to remember, and even if you're saved here today, we need to be reminded time and time again about the sinfulness of humanity. The fact that we and ourselves are rebellious and fallen people. Human record and the record of Scripture teaches us that we are guilty of unbelief. We are people who have lived in rebellion against God. We are a, 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 we are a creation that is often against God and His Word. We reject Him. We disobey His revelation to us. And from the time that we are born, we are born with that sin nature, and we are people who transgress against the law of God. And the Bible teaches us that when the law is broken, there is a penalty that must be paid for the law. There's a penalty that must be suffered for that sin. See, mankind is to be judged, and we must bear punishment for our sins. Now, you might be thinking, well, what is the punishment? Well, Romans 6, 23 tells us that the wages of sin is what? Death. So we know that as fallen human beings, and, and I'm sorry if this rubs you the wrong way, but we are all sinners today. We are by nature rebels. We, we resist against the goodness and the righteousness and the holiness of God. And so we are sinners today. We know that. And there is a penalty for that sin. And that penalty is death. You say, well, why would God desire a penalty like death for sin? Here's the reason. is because God is holy. He is righteous. He is just. He is completely perfect, isn't he? And so because he is perfect, he cannot allow any sin or sinful being within his presence. And so that is why there is no access to God. There is a penalty then for our sin. Our sin dooms us to death and eternal separation from God. But listen, this is where the glorious gospel comes in. Because for us, we look at that and we say, well, what, what can we then do? And I'll tell you this, there are millions and probably billions of people on this earth who know that they are sinners, but they are still trying to answer that question themselves. What then can I do to achieve whatever is after this life? And so we understand that it means death and eternal separation from God. But like I mentioned, the gospel, which is glorious, steps in. And we see it here in the declaration of this great verse here that Jesus Christ then suffered and he suffered unto death. Why? For sin. For sins. He hath once suffered for sins. See, Jesus, church, took the sin and the guilt of man upon himself and he bore within his body the judgment and the punishment for man. The word that is translated here, sins for us, it is the same word used in the Old Testament for the sin offering. 
And Peter's point here is very clear. What he is saying is that Jesus is the replacement for the sacrifice of animals. That Jesus once and for all became the fulfillment of that sin offering. His death was the final payment that was necessary to cover the penalty of our sins. And I love how the verse says here that he only had to die once. Man, don't you love that? He only had to die once. Up until this point, for those uh, years of, of Israel's history when God had revealed his law to man, we know that there were sacrifices, daily sacrifices, weekly sacrifices, so many. Think of the millions and millions and millions of sacrifices that had to be done in behalf of the sins of the world. And yet, what do we see here? We see Jesus once, one time, he paid the penalty for our sins with his shed blood. Man, that's powerful. That's powerful. We don't need to live today continually sacrificing Jesus on the cross. This is one of the problems I have with crucifixes, you know, it's got the little Jesus on there. Listen, he's not on the cross anymore, is he? We don't have to be like, listen, he's resurrected. He paid the penalty. We don't have to keep putting him up on the cross. He paid for our sins one time for all. That's powerful. That's amazing. And that's the great thing is how Jesus encompasses all of the law and all of this in that one act. And this is the gospel. This is the good news. And the reason he was able to do that, the reason the cross then satisfied, his death satisfied God's demand for a penalty for sin was because Jesus was perfect. Notice there in the verse, it says that he was the just for the unjust. And that's powerful. The reason he was enough, the reason Christ's sacrifice was enough for the sins of all mankind was because he was, even in Acts they call him the just one, he was perfectly righteous and holy. In Hebrews chapter 7 verse 26 it says, for such an high priest became us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. This is a description of Jesus Christ here for us. Holy, harmless, undefiled, and separate from us. And because of that, he then was able to be the acceptable substitute for the death that was coming to mankind. And because Jesus truly is the innocent dying for the guilty, of course, that was the picture that was seen there, the innocent animal, the lamb, uh, dying for the sins of, of, of a person here. He was the innocent dying for the guilty. It is then for us, Something that becomes so much more than just a hope-so understanding, it becomes a no-so, a fact that we can be saved through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. I think of verse 24 of 1 Peter 2 where it says, who in his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sins should live unto righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. And so Jesus here once suffered for sins, the perfect righteous sacrifice, the just for the unjust. But then I want you to notice here that next phrase that it says there, that he might bring us to God. Now this is amazing. So the just died for the unjust. By the way, we didn't deserve that, did we? We didn't deserve that. And so he died for those of us who did not deserve it. And the reason that he did it, notice here, is that he might bring us to God. Now, this is a really interesting phrase. It's a technical term. It means to gain audience at, at a court, to gain an audience. And so what that tells us is that because of the work of Christ on the cross, we have open access to God. I think about Ephesians 2 and Ephesians 3, verse number 12. It means that we can come boldly before his throne, as Hebrews 10, verse 19 teaches us. And so we have access to his grace to meet our daily needs, and we can come before God, and this is the reason, this is the amazing thing, the reason for Christ's death, that he is the just, died for the unjust, is so that you and I could receive forgiveness of sins and also stand boldly before God. 
Think about that. This is how much God loves you. This is how much he cares about you. This is how much of your sin he has forgiven, all of it, so that you could come and stand before a holy God. Remember, remember, God cannot have any unrighteousness in front of him. But because of Christ, if we are in Christ, if we know Christ, we are able to then to stand before him. And this is an incredible blessing, church. Something that we need to be reminded about over and over again. And that's what Peter's doing here. Sometimes I find when Peter writes, he's like, he starts here and then he goes like this and then he kind of comes back around, you know? He's all over the place. But he also always comes back to the cross. He comes back to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ because Peter, the one who had denied Christ, the one who had caused so many problems, the one who tried to take things in his own hands with a sword... We need Christ. We need Christ. And we need his forgiveness not only for our sin uh, that has pointed us towards eternal damnation, but also we need him for our sins, the continuing struggle that we go through in the Christian life. And so Jesus is enough, and I want you to know that. And that gives us great hope. Because throughout the course of life, we struggle, don't we, continually. We talked about it in our men's breakfast yesterday, that we are constantly in a spiritual battle. We're in a battle against the flesh, aren't we? Uh, we're in a battle against the devil. We're in a battle against the world and the society around us. And it's a constant battle. And sometimes we don't always win the battle, do we? But we keep on fighting, don't we? We keep on fighting. And the reason is because we know that our God is with us. He's beside us. And he has given us. And he is powerful enough. And he's strong enough. And he's forgiven us enough to continue on for him. And so even if you come to church on a day like today and you're, and you're right now struggling with sin... God can forgive you because he has already paid the penalty for that sin. If you would just turn to him and as 1 John teaches us, confess our sins, he's faithful and he's just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And today can be a fresh start for you. Today can be a fresh start for me because of what Jesus did on the cross and the crucifixion. And so Peter reminds us of this fact. And, and for us as believers, I mean, we should never get tired. You should never be like, oh, he's preaching the gospel again. You know, I know we got Easter coming, right? And was like, I know what he's going to say. <laughs> of course we do. And we need to know that, don't we? We need to be reminded of that, of what Jesus did for us. But Peter moves from the simplicity of the gospel and the power of it that we need to be reminded of. But over the next verse or so, he includes a couple of difficult, hard-to-understand statements that many people find difficult to interpret. It's one of those passages that no matter where you take a stand on, someone's going to disagree with you. Does that make sense? You know, hard to believe, but not all Christians uh, come to consensus on every passage. <laughs> it's interesting. In fact, on, uh, in one of my commentaries, uh, the, uh, the, it's called the pulpit commentary. In just on this verse alone that we're about to read, he gives 24 different interpretations with different philosophers and theologians that back up their statements. So 24 different ones just on this one verse we're about to read. So I want you to know today that I got it all figured out, okay? And uh, <laughs> no. here's what we're going to do. Rather than me giving you all 24 possible options, which would be fun and would be uh, 24 weeks of Wednesday night Bible study, uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to share with you what I would believe would be a possible interpretation, okay? It makes sense to me. Done some study on it. Um, and of course, I would love to hear from you, from your own study later on this week, what you think that maybe it possibly means. But there are some things that certainly we do know uh, happen here. So this is where we come to Christ's proclamation. So we have the crucifixion of Christ, 
And now we have Christ's proclamation. Let's dig into these verses here. The last part of 18, where he said, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. By which also, verse 19, he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometime were disobedient, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was a preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. Now, an important lesson when it comes to Bible interpretation is to interpret the passages that are unclear by the passages that are clear. But at the same time, there are some unique places where there's not a lot of supporting material <laughs> surrounding it uh, that you could help in understanding the passage. But we're going to give it a shot this morning. So first of all, let's work our way through these verses and try to understand what is happening here. First of all, we see that there is Christ's descent. Notice here in verse 19 that he, was died, he died in the flesh, okay, so he died on the cross, right? But he was quickened, that means made alive in the Spirit, by which also then, so in the Spirit, he went and preached unto the spirits in prison. And so we see here in the Bible the first prison ministry. Actually, no, that would probably be Paul and Silas, right, in jail. That would probably be the first one. But we see Jesus here. Actually, that was before them, actually. Never mind. It was before them. But we see Jesus going and preaching in this prison. So what is this prison? What does this mean? When did this occur? Who are these spirits? What is the proclamation? Good questions, right? So we need to go back to what was happening, and we need to read the rest of the verse. So it says that he preached to some spirits, okay, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was preparing, wherein a few that eight souls were saved by water. Okay, so to understand, let's go back to where this was all happening. So he goes all the way back to the flood and Noah. So I want to go back to Genesis chapter 6 and verse 5 and 6. It tells us what was happening during these days of God's long suffering, remember there was 120 years where Noah not only built the ark, but he also preached the gospel to people. He preached about the coming, uh, uh, the judgment of God that was coming. But look at verse six, uh, five, and six here of Genesis six. It tells us what was happening during that time. It says, "And God saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and every imagination of his, of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually." So mankind at this time. Whatever they could imagine and everything that they were coming up with was evil. Verse 6 says, And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. I mean, it was a horribly wicked place. Horribly wicked place before the flood. And one of the wildest things that happened during that time is seen just a few verses earlier. So let's look at verse 1 and 2 of Genesis chapter 6. It says, And it came to pass when man began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose. Now, this is a tough passage to interpret as well, by the way. And I spent many hours in Bible college debating this passage with guys in my dorm room. And all sorts of things came out of it. <laughs> but this interesting passage where we have this sons of God referenced here is commonly known and and what we would understand more than likely a description of fallen angels that came in some way or possessed somehow some men and they took human women to themselves and we know from that time there was actually a race of people that were giants in the land. It's really interesting. It's not found anywhere else in scripture. It was this before the flood. Now of course we know this was not this is outside of God's design and so when the flood came all of this wickedness ended 
and this generation ended, and God's judgment came upon these angels, and they were placed in a location that is in the Greek called Tartarus. This is the prison, this is the same word that is mentioned in the verse that we just read in 1 Peter 3. In 2 Peter chapter 2, this is referenced, this whole thing is referenced again, where it says, For if God spare not the angels that sin, but cast them down to hell, that word hell is Tartarus, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment, and spared not the old world, but again, here we go to Noah, and saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. In Jude chapter, verse 6, it says, And the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation. This is an interesting uh, story about the angels. They left their habitation. This is the idea of the fallen angels again. He hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness. And what is he reserving them to? Unto the judgment of the great day. We should also note in this passage that the word that is used to tra- as translated spirits, pneuma, is not a word that is ever used in scripture to connect it to an individual, a person. It is always used in the context of angels, whether they're fallen angels that are still roaming about, or we do know from scripture that there is a group of angels that have been bound in this Tartarus, which is a sort of a temporary prison of suffering for them upon which they'll be released at the day of judgment, the ultimate day of judgment. Okay, I know we're getting into a lot of angelology today. This is really great. Um, so here's where we're at. Let's just wrap it all up. Let's, let, let's try to put it all together. Oh, the, I do want to point out one other thing. Notice here it says that Jesus, it says that he preached to them. That doesn't mean evangelize. Okay, so he wasn't down there and saying, you need to believe in me, fallen angels. We know that they, are, they, they cannot believe. They made their decision. But it's the word that means to proclaim. It means to herald something. So let's put this all together. Here's what we can conclude. We can conclude that in the time that Jesus died on the cross and his flesh died for the sins of mankind, his spirit, of course, he is God, his spirit was alive and well. And what we can understand is that his inner being descended into this prison, this Tartarus, And he proclaimed to these fallen spirits his victory over sin and death. He proclaimed to them his power over their boss, Satan. And he declared to them that their efforts to confuse and corrupt the human race were not going to succeed. That he was the victor through death. And it's an amazing scenario when you consider it. If you can just imagine, you know, imagine it in your mind's eye of what that would have been like. It's incredible to think about what had happened here. And Peter, remember, is, is talking about this. He had spoken to the resurrected Lord. I don't know that after Jesus was resurrected, Peter pulled him aside and said, hey, what was happening during those three days? <laughs> I know you're God, so like what was going on? You just walked through a wall. You know, <laughs> what, uh, what were you doing? And he said, well, just, just let you know. I just went down there and told them what was up. You know, <laughs> reminded them who's in charge. And Peter mentions it here. He said, why would Peter even put this in here? Because it is. It causes a lot. There's, there's so many, like I said, there's so many different interpretations here that you can go with. I think this is a, a safe way to look at this. But you're saying, why is he doing this? Well, he's building the case that the resurrection of Christ is a triumph over Satan. And it's a victory. And he's, and he's telling us, he's saying, listen, this is what you can be thankful for, that there's a victory. Christ even went down to those, those fallen angels that corrupted the human race so much, and he told them what was up. He said, I, I, I survived this, and you're not going to have the victory. 
that gives us, again, great confidence that we can be thankful for. And this was Christ's proclamation. But now Peter gives us another challenging passage to consider as he talks about Christ's resurrection. Let's look now at verse number 21. Christ's resurrection in verse 21. Now he says this. He says, The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. Now that should give you pause when you read that right there, right? Baptism does save us. And then he puts this, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now before you get upset and before you get confused and all of a sudden start, you know, what is happening here? We need to recognize that Peter is prefacing his statement on baptism with, notice it says the term, the like figure. That is, means it is an anti-type. And I'll define that for you. It is an earthly expression of a spiritual reality. So he's giving us here a picture, a symbol, a pattern of spiritual truth. And Peter is not talking about water baptism here, meaning the baptism that we go through after we are saved, that is a representation of the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ as an identifying factor to uh, unbelievers and believers alike that we are saved. Okay, this is not what he's talking about here. He's not talking about that. He's saying, I'm giving you a picture. Are you with me? Some of you look very confused. All right, stay with me here. (laughs) Uh, here, Here's what he's saying. (coughs) He's giving us an image to understand. Now remember, this is continuing the thought of being connected to Noah and the ark. Remember? Yeah? You got it? Okay. I want to make sure you guys got it. Everyone looks all like, what's going on here? Okay, I'm going to just read my notes because they're really good. Then you'll get them, all right? Here's what he's doing. Here's what he's doing. He is comparing Jesus to the ark that saved the eight persons that were just mentioned in the verse before. Here's what he's saying. See, God's judgment fell on Christ for the sins of the world, just like judgment waters came on this earth for the sins of mankind. And just like those that were in the ark sailed through the judgment waters into, of course, being saved in the same way We as Christians who are in Christ are in the ark of safety, which means that we survive the judgment that is to come at the end of the world. See, the picture that Peter is giving to us, and he's emphasizing it by referencing the resurrection there at the end, and what he's trying to say is that Jesus is the worthy ark of safety. He is the one that we can trust in to take us through the judgment of God that is, of course, we know coming to this earth again. We know that he will not destroy the world by a flood again, but he will destroy the world by fire. And so to survive the judgment of God upon a sinful person, you need to go to Jesus, the ark of safety, and he is worthy. And and this is the picture that he's trying to get across to us, that Jesus is our ark of safety. He is the one that we can turn to, to be free, to be rescued from the judgment of God. This is why he says here, it's like uh, baptism, again, is another picture of the judgment that came upon Christ, but then yet he rose again and came out of that and survived. In the same way, when we hold on to Christ, when we are in Christ, when we are saved, we are able to go through the judgment that is to come. Some of you are still looking a little confused. Talk to me after the service. But it, it, it's an it's, it's, it's amazing thing to think about, that Jesus is the ark. The ark is a picture, an antitype, a picture of Jesus Christ. So that is Christ's resurrection and the importance for it. We can turn to him as our ark of safety. But then lastly, as we close this morning, 
we see Christ's exaltation in verse number 22. He says, Who has gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him? Now, Peter, of course, was an eyewitness, if you remember, was an eyewitness to the ascension of Jesus from the Mount of Olives 40 days after the resurrection. And he gives us here a glimpse of what Jesus has been doing ever since that happened. Notice here in the verse it says that Jesus is in heaven. He is at the right hand of God the Father, which is a place of honor. And all authority, notice there at the, the last part of the verse, that angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. So here's the big idea here. Since Jesus is over all power and Jesus is over all authorities in both the physical and the spiritual realms, what he's trying to say to us is this. Then followers of Christ, if you are a follower of Christ, you then need not fear anything or anyone. That's what he's trying to say. Because Jesus is above and over all things, he will provide, he will protect, he will deliver through all the trials and temptations of life, no matter how terrible and no matter how severe they are. And whether you're a Christian who he's writing to in AD 85 who is uh, facing persecution from a pagan Roman emperor, or if you're a Christian today in 2022 uh, facing the loss of a friend over your biblical worldview of culture, or even the threat of outside sources or of disease or whatever it is that brings fear into the human mind, what he's trying to get across to us today is that the same Lord is Lord over all things and we do not need to live in fear because God is in control and as his child you are safe in him and there's nothing that can happen outside of his watchful care. That's the summation of that verse there. He's saying, you need to know that Jesus right now is at the right hand of the Father and he is over all things. Therefore, you are secure and safe in him. If you are his, if you are his, you are safe in him. Warren Wearsby said this about this passage. He said, as Christians, we do not fight for victory, but from victory. I love that. We do not fight for victory, but we fight from victory. The mighty victory that our Lord Jesus Christ won for us in his death, in his resurrection, and in his ascension. And the truth is this morning is that you are on the winning team. You're on the winning team. I love that. I don't know if you maybe as a, as a child, if you can remember what it would be like in elementary school or in high school. And they say, all right, everybody, it's time for the science project. And we're going to pair you up. You, ever, you remember what that was like? And we're going to pair you up and we're going to put you on a team and... Uh, and I remember, for me, I was not the smartest student by far. And so I was always very hopeful to be on a certain person's team, right? <laughs> if it was an art project, I really wanted Waylon Chang on my team because, man, that guy could do art, you know? <laughs> if it was a field trip, I wanted Sarah on my team because her dad was the coolest and he always drove for field trips. And so I knew I'd have a good time. When I was on a basketball team, I always knew who I wanted to be on my lineup because they were way better than I. And here's the reason why. Some of you maybe can't relate to that, but here's the reason why. Here's why I would get so excited. is because I knew that they were going to elevate everything to a place that I could not take it to. And so it gave me confidence. It gave me confidence. You know what it's like to walk into a room and have somebody there that just brings confidence into your life. Maybe you're going through a difficult time and that friend calls you and you see their, their name on your phone and you're like, okay, I'm going to be okay. They're calling me. They're going to pray with me. They're going to encourage me. Here's the thing, we should live our life, no matter what our external circumstances are, in that mindset that I'm on the winning team. I'm on the winning team. Just like when you're kids and you had that one kid who did a home run every single time, it was softball time, you know, or kickball, you're like, we got this. In the same way, you can approach life and just say, you know what, I got this. 
I got this because God is on my side. And he is in heaven right now and he is over all things, spiritual, physical. God is in control and I can trust him today because of that. We are on the same team as Jesus and he is our victorious savior. Philippians 2 verse 9 through 11 teaches us, wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, Jesus is the name above all names. He is worthy to be praised. He is worthy to be worshiped. And I want to ask you this morning, have you made him your Lord today? Have you made him your Lord? Christian, are you living in defeat? Are you living in fear? You don't have to. You don't have to because you have a victorious Savior. He has defeated all. And he is the worthy ark of safety that you can turn to for your salvation and you can turn to him for victory in this life. So are you living in victory today? Jesus has proven his victory even through suffering. And you can look at life in the same way as well.